I'm novelist Sherry Todd Bayshore, and this is Mystery Podcast, another day and the second chapter from my suspense thriller, 24 Sussex Drive. The Cold War never really ended. It went underground, then waited, morphing and reorganizing into something far more treacherous. Alberta, Western Canada, May 9, 1977. Chapter 2. Visibility was poor, but Victoria Hamilton knew the road well. Every turn and dip was as familiar as the layout of her house. Though the rural highway was just a narrow two-lane with almost non-existent shoulders, Victoria still preferred this isolated route home. The lighter traffic more than made up for the pinched passing. Regardless of the weather, the drive was always a National Geographic photo through some of Alberta's richest farmland. The tranquil curving parkland hills of wild poplar and birch dotted the countryside in random patches enfolding family farms preserved by several generations. On this excursion, however, the small towns and orderly farms she loved so well passed unnoticed. Victoria's mind replayed the conversation she'd had earlier that afternoon with Tom Williamson. Tom had been a childhood friend she remained close to since their years in elementary school. Tom had since become a lawyer, and Victoria trusted him. She was sure his information was accurate, but she struggled with her own limited frame of reference. Victoria, who had grown up in an uncomplicated family, hadn't encountered anyone who carefully plotted to swindle others, so the driving force that motivated deliberate deceit escaped her logic. Nothing in her humble upbringing had prepared her for the facts Tom had presented only two hours before in his office. She had shuffled through the pages of his summary. Nothing I see here strikes anywhere in my powers of comprehension. How could this happen? Tom had laughed, shaking his head. Victoria, when I first went to law school, I was green, gullible, naive, innocent, simple, a complete novice. I grew up in Red Deer, Alberta, too. Nothing here prepared either one of us for all of the folks out there, Tom pointed to a window, who hadn't grown up as we had. There's a host of bent and wounded people in our world who do bent and wounded things to go along with their scrambled personalities. Tom had paused for a moment to look out of the office window by his desk to the rain-soaked streets and cars splashing below. The fact that you find the very idea of a cheat in one of Whitecourt's civic positions astonishing actually makes it possible for someone like that to operate in the first place. They're everywhere, but smaller communities can be more vulnerable. The vast majority of town citizens are trusting, Tom shrugged. So the guys like him quietly live among you, ripping off their neighbors. Being a regular church-going family man completes his disguise. And make no mistake, that is a disguise. So there it is. How you and your editor plan to deal with this is something else again. You don't have much of a legal case as your situation stands now. You have suspicions, a few incidents that don't quite jive, a dubious background via hearsay, and contradiction in advice. This is ridiculous, Victoria objected. Rumors about Sparks have been whispered around at barbecues and parties since David and I moved to Whitecourt three years ago. But that talk intensified into a more open forum since January. People started writing letters to the mayor and the newspaper, protesting their mill rate. I came to you because at the moment we've nothing to justify the police, So we had a meeting at the paper and decided to investigate on our own to either be rid of the man or lay the talk to rest. Tom cautioned. 
Good, since you can't fire your own town manager without just cause. Suspicion and annoying property taxes aren't just cause. For the time being, obviously someone likes him or fears him, or he couldn't keep his present job. Have you considered that a council member or the mayor may be a partner in his dealings? Granted, the population of Whitecourt is only 5,000 people, but I find it difficult to believe Warren Sparks operated for so long without the help of possibly someone on staff with him in the town office, or at least one elected council member too. As for the legal authority Sparks quoted, Tom continued, and the source that you asked me to find, that was a little tricky. Sparks consulted Whitecourt's lawyers in Edmonton, all right, but I suspect only to cover his flank. However, he saw a second lawyer in Edmonton as well. The name of the second lawyer was Greg Holden. Holden practices on another floor in the very same office tower. Reading the minutes you gave me from the town meeting in question indicates the legal advice Warren Sparks gave was not wrong as much as it was misleading and calculating. There were three ways counsel could have decided on that contract. Personally, I felt the white court lawyers gave Sparks the best advice. However, from what I could glean after I spoke to the town's legal advisors, then checked back with the minutes, after conferring with white court lawyers, your Mr. Sparks immediately headed for Holden's office and asked for technical alternatives to move around in, and he got them. Tom opened the cover of Victoria's three-ring binder, then turned to the second-last entry in the book. If you'll note, this portion of the minutes right here, it quotes Warren Sparks as saying, he saw the town's lawyers in Edmonton on such-and-such such a day. Then he went on to state, the legal advice he received led him to favor Plan A, etc., etc. Tom closed the book. There's no direct reference in the minutes where he verbally connects the legal advice he got and gave to counsel as the same advice he actually received from the town's lawyers. It's only assumed, and rightly so, by those attending the meeting. But the way Warren Sparks worded his report, he can't be pinned down. Tom studied Victoria as he handed back the binder containing her copy of the 1976-1977 Town Council Minutes. He realized she was stymied, but he also realized she knew too much to step away. Victoria had taken the binder from Tom, then wrapped her arms around it as a form of shield, and with that she became conscious of a slight shift. Somewhere in the yesterday of her life she heard a door close. Shaking off the odd sensation, she faced her childhood friend. The man must be scary smart. He's that, Tom sighed. But if he's redirecting funds away from town accounts, I doubt he's able to do it completely alone. She had packed the binder back into her canvas tote, then walked to a corner office window. From the third floor office above the second floor dentist that was above the first floor shoe store, Victoria saw over the tops of lower store roofs to the boulevard of mountain ash and spruce trees that grew along the cross streets of Gates and Ross. How did you discover the exact advice that was given by the town lawyers to Warren Sparks? Isn't that actually privileged information? It is. When Tom grinned, she remembered when he was twelve again. He got up from behind his desk and headed for the coffee maker on the small table beside his office door. He poured a cup and then held up a cup to Victoria. She shook her head. He sipped from the filled cup. Lawyers often confer with one another on various matters where certain expertise is greater. Using a hypothetical case, I phoned your town's law firm, 
Downing Sloan and Whitehead, then gave Brian Whitehead the background on a construction contract issue. I told him that I had a client who wished to vote intelligently on a contract question and sought my advice. Since Downing, Sloan, and Whitehead specialize in municipal law, my call to Whitehead was logical. Brian admitted he had recently given advice on a similar case to the one I described for another town. Brian had no way of knowing I suspected which town he referred to. Since he named neither the town nor the administrator involved, he hadn't divulged any confidences. Half of Tom's coffee went down in one gulp. To carry you, my client, one step farther, I have some strong advice for your town council. They need to be more alert. They shouldn't blindly take the word of one man, then vote on an important civic issue on just that basis. It's clear your town manager runs everything pretty much unsupervised and with few, if any, checks and balances. With that much freedom, a weak character could easily create temptation of office. And the council members are only doing half a job if they don't read up on issues or consult independent advice to stay informed. There are so many facets to our laws, continued Tom. The wording of anything is key, and this guy's no fool as far as that goes. I doubt that time and his ego are going to trip up this man. A change of mayor and at least a third of the council members might disturb his cozy setup. That's another problem, Victoria interrupted, lifting her shoulders in a gesture of futility. There hasn't been any opposition to the mayor's chair for five terms, and the exact situation holds true for each of the council seats. The same old faces run and then get re-elected every time. The town is small, Victoria continued. Every other person knows every other person. Half the population was born and raised there. It's no problem making friends. They're generous people but old loyalties run deep. I can well imagine what would happen if I began making an issue of the casual attitude of town council as well as the apathy that plagues local electorate. Tom smiled again. Too many voters believe their job is done when they cast their vote, but apathy and the misuse of public trust isn't new, nor is it the exclusive problem of a small town in northwestern Alberta. It's flourished globally for thousands of years. Victoria looked warily into the familiar blue eyes across the room. I suddenly feel very tired, like someone just showed me the map of a 50-mile wilderness hike I must start, all uphill. Ah, yes, with every new level of knowledge comes more responsibility. Tom returned his cup to the table with the coffee maker. Without intending to, you've rubbed the genie lamp and you can't unknow what you know. You'd like to return to David and the girls and write your weekly column as you've done in peace, but that's changed. There's just enough information to indicate something doesn't make sense. Now you and your editor are committed. Rain washed over her small VW Beetle, pushed by gusty winds that made steering along the narrow road an effort, while Tom's words replayed in her memory as clearly as if she still stood in his office. Use your column, Victoria, Tom had urged. Start gently at first, then more persistently. Draw people out of their comfy chairs. Encourage other residents to stand for local office. Fortunately, you have a civic election coming this fall, so you have plenty of time to whip up stronger enthusiasm in the coming term. Words are your tools. Make war and sparks start to squirm a little. And this ends Chapter 2 for 24 Sussex Drive. And hopefully you're just a little more intrigued as to what's going on. Please return again tomorrow for all of Chapter 3. Thank you again so very much for listening.